Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Today, it's me, Greg, and I have Jeff and Aaron with me, and we're here to sort of give you our spin on the latest mountain bike news. It's been a busy week in the mountain biking world. A lot of stuff has gone down for a random week in February, so we're going to give you our take on a lot of these topics. For more information on all of these, be sure to check out singletracks.com as we've published an article or a video on each of these recently. To get us started, we just had a tragedy this past weekend. Kelly McGarry, who's a world-renowned freerider, previously sponsored by YT and Diamondback before that, um, has made a massive name for himself in events like the Red Bull Rampage. Unfortunately, Kelly died while mountain biking in his home country of New Zealand this past weekend, which is just a massive tragic loss to the whole community. I met him personally a few times and uh, just an awesome guy, just super nice, great to be around. It's just uh, pretty horrible. One bit of information above and beyond what we've already published comes from a website, stuff.co.nz, a New Zealand website. The website did mention the cause of death, which we hadn't heard before. And here's a direct quote from stuff.co.nz. They said, the 33-year-old from Nelson was biking on the Fernhill Loop Track when he suffered from a cardiac arrest while riding uphill at 4.14 p.m. on Monday. So thoughts and prayers go out to Kelly's family and his friends and, uh, and all the people that know him in our community. I've met him a few times as well, and he was just a really fun guy to be around. So the mountain bike community will definitely miss him. Unfortunately, moving on. So lots of other crazy stuff has happened this week. One of the biggest news items was actually in a cyclocross event, which is a weird hybrid between mountain biking and road biking. But we figured we'd talk about it. Mechanical doping, which is essentially putting a hidden motor into your bike that nobody knows about has been rumored to have existed for years but the first confirmed instance of this in a world championship international level event was just uncovered this past weekend so i want to ask you guys like what exactly do you think leads people to cheat like this i mean you know there's epo there's blood doping but i mean if you're putting a motor in your bicycle it's like there's no doubt in your mind about what you're doing. So what do you think leads people to do that? That's a good question. I mean, it's hard to imagine there's, you know, cycling is not a sport where there's huge, huge payouts. I mean, I guess at the tour de France level, get into some serious money there, but you know, it's not like other professional sports. So I don't know. I have a hard time imagining because not only are you cheating, but that's probably an expensive motor that you put in. Like you're investing in this cheat and not only that like there really isn't a big payoff i mean i guess there's sponsorships and things like that but yeah i have a hard time understanding it myself i don't know i mean people want to win right people will bend the rules sometimes to the point of outright breaking them to do so so you know while maybe they're you know she was a u23 racer which is the under 23 category so these are kind of the up-and-coming pros and she was a you know very well known and kind of a favorite for the event already. So yeah, I don't know. The, the whole story is very bizarre. You know, she claims she's not sure how this bike got into her pit at the uh, World Champs because in cyclocross you can use multiple bikes, so you can actually trade out during the lap in, in the pit areas if you need to. If you need a clean bike if the course is super muddy or something like that. So she claims that this is actually a bike that 
she sold it was her bike but she sold it to a friend of hers and it just happened to be like sitting in her pits which it just doesn't really hold a lot of water (laughs) you know especially at that level of competition which I just find the whole thing a little bit weird because if it you know she says this is a bike from last season so I have a hard time believing that her mechanics wouldn't be able to you know see some difference between this bike that she rode last year and you know one she's riding you know her current 2016 bike so it's a little a little bizarre and the the story gets even weirder <laughs> I, I read this so her mm. her brother is a, a racer as well and he's actually serving a suspension for doping not motor doping but actual you know doping doping right now <laughs> and to go even even weirder um <laughs> Her brother and father have been accused of, and I'm not joking here, this is serious, they've been accused of stealing expensive parakeets from a pet shop in Belgium. So, <laughs> What? Yeah, it's... Uh, is that a thing? I, I guess so. Um, yeah, apparently they went into this pet shop and, like, grabbed a couple of parakeets out of a cage and, like, put them in a bag and dipped out. So, interesting family, for sure. Jeez. The thing that gets me about the whole situation is how, you know, she is constantly putting the blame on other people, you know? It's like she's not accepting, like, any blame whatsoever. She's like, oh, it's my friend. Oh, it's my mechanics, you know? This isn't me, but it's – wow. (laughs) I'd be interested to continue following the story as it develops for sure. Definitely. And I bet a lot of people are going to be wondering where they can buy one of those kits, you know, whether they're racers or not. I mean, it looks like pretty cool tech if you ask me. There's a website that does sell them, you know, so I pulled a few images for the article. This is stuff that you can just buy and install, you know, it's, uh, it's readily available. So <laughs> it's just interesting. Yeah. I think we were talking about getting some of those for our e-store, weren't we, uh, yeah. Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a lot of interest. <laughs> I guess this raises another question. Do you think this is happening in mountain biking now and will we see it, you know, happening in mountain biking if it's not already? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's happening in mountain biking. I'm kind of surprised that it's taken this long to actually catch somebody doing it. Like you said, or Aaron said, they've, they've been talking about it for years, that this is a possibility. And so if this technology has been around that long, for sure somebody's been using it in some level of racing. Maybe not in pro level, but I'm sure it's been used in some race at some point. Yeah, you know, the I think the motors are still fairly heavy, but you know, with everything in mountain biking, the weight is going to go down. So, while it may not there's some cost benefit you have to weigh, you're making your bike heavier, but you're also getting a boost in power, but you know, after all the scandals that we've seen in road pro cycling and cyclocross and mountain biking, frankly, I I wouldn't rule anything out. So, another Interesting news bit at the beginning of the week was Santa Cruz's announcement of their new high tower bike, and this bike fills the slot left by the discontinuation of the Tallboy LT. But interestingly, the new bike is all boost compatible, and it's for sale in both 29er and 27.5 plus configurations. So you can buy the bike stock in either of those wheel and tire standards and with the choice of three different build kits in each of those standards and as a frame only if you want to go that route. So my question to you guys is, you know, we've seen a few launches like this. Will we start seeing more and more dual wheel size launches like this in the coming year? Yeah, I mean, I think you've already seen it, right? Like, so most 29ers, 
including my Santa Cruz Tallboy, can be converted to 27.5 plus spikes. It's just a fact of what the diameters, how they line up with each other. And so, you know, in some ways, I don't think this is like big news. I mean, I think it is big news because they officially support it. But um, this is something that, you know, a lot of people have been doing for a while. And frankly, a lot of the 27.5 plus frames that we saw at Interbike this year, I personally suspected they were just 29ers that, you know, they kind of maybe made the, well, in some cases, they didn't even make the clearances wider. Um, a lot of them were just slapping 2.8 inch scraper rims and uh, trailblazer tires on them and calling them 27.5 plus. So, I mean, it is cool to see that this is like an official build out of that. But yeah, I mean, I think the ability to do this has been around for a while. Right. I think the most noteworthy thing was that you can change this the shock position on the new Santa Cruz, which allows you to raise the bottom bracket back up. So if you're going from 29-inch wheels to the 27.5 plus, there is going to be a little bit of size difference. So they do have a little flip chip on their uh, linkage that allows you to kind of get the bottom bracket back up to where it needs to be. But yeah, I think a lot of companies will be touting this this year and the 27.5 plus and 29er compatibility. But like Jeff said, I mean, he's been running 27.5 plus wheels on his older tall boy for what, like a year now? Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Well, it is interesting too. I mean, what would be cool to me is if your build kit came with both wheel sets. It sounds like you have to choose which one you want to do, but if it's truly a, an adaptable bike, then ship both wheel sets with it and let people swap them out, you know, if it's that easy. I'm sure that go over well, making Santa Cruz's even more expensive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is good I mean, for them. Yeah, it definitely wouldn't be cheap. But I guess the cool thing is, you know, that's a relatively easy aftermarket upgrade. You know, you get one and you're like, um, I, I could go for a different wheel set. I guess the most interesting thing to me is just seeing them offering both stock specs, you know, which hasn't really happened. And the other brands that have launched 27.5 Pluses, you know, on their 29er platform, they've sort of created a separate model and they're like, here's our 27.5 Plus right. bike, you know, whereas it's the same bike. And Santa Cruz is like, here's the high tower. You can get it with whichever wheels you want. Here are your different options, but it's the same bike. Yep. It'll just be interesting to see, you know, how that analysis takes place in other brands as uh, Sea Otter hits us and then Interbike soon this fall. I just wanted to add, I mean, it is a fairly easy swap right to go to the 27.5 plus but they also suggest using a different fork so you're not talking about just a set of wheels you're talking about either a whole new fork or at least a new air shaft for your fork so you can swap it out and because they recommend running a 150 millimeter fork when you're in the 27.5 plus and a 140 millimeter fork when you're in the 29 so it's not just as easy as changing wheels and tires it's it's a little more it actually depends a little bit on which fork comes stock with the bike or which stock setup you get. So according to their press release, if you get the 27.5 plus stock build, which comes with the 150 mil fork, you can put the 29er wheel into the 150 mil fork and the geometry is going to work out okay. That's a compromise you can make without even adjusting the air can. And that kind of will allude to a podcast I'll be launching soon about adjusting the geometry of your bike with the change in front travel of your fork but the key is if you get the 29er model with the 140 mil fork they don't recommend putting the 27.5 plus wheel on the 140 so if you're buying a full-blown stock build 
and you're thinking you might go with two wheel sets, the best one to get is the 27.5 plus to begin with the 150 because you can throw a 29 wheel set in there. You can't yeah. the other one. So, <laughs> so there's a lot of different ways you can attack it. You can still do what Aaron said and do a different air can and drop it to 140 if you want. But if you're not that concerned with the 10 millimeter difference, you can put the 29ers in that bigger fork. They're definitely not making it easy for, for the buyer, but um, it's not an entry-level bike by any means. So yeah, last uh, impressions. Would you guys ride this bike? Well, I think you guys know I've been waiting for this bike for a while, so I will definitely ride the shit out of it. Personally, I I don't I don't really care about the 27.5 plus compatibility. That's not a really big selling point for me. I I would just rock it as a 29er, and I don't know. It, it would be interesting to try it as a 29er with that 150 fork up front and just see how it rode. But it is pretty dang expensive, I will say. I mean, even the most affordable option, I'm using air quotes here, everybody. Uh, <laughs> the most affordable build kit is 4600 bucks. Um, if you want just a frame and the shock, it's gonna that's going to run you almost three grand. I guess that's kind of to be expected with Santa Cruz and bikes these days, but it's pretty pretty stout for <laughs> a you know, lower-end build, 4600 bucks. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in it as well since I'm running a tall boy right now. Um, and when I bought my tall boy at the time, that was like a year, maybe it's two years before they came out with the tall boy LT. And looking back, probably would have preferred the LT, you know, if I had the option. So, yeah, I mean, this is the heir apparent to the LT. So I'm definitely interested too. Well, one other thing that happened this past weekend, lots happened over the weekend apparently, uh, was the Fat Bike World Championships in Crested Butte. And they were touting this event as the first ever Fat Bike Worlds. The UCI sort of had a debate about that, but <laughs> they didn't really care because it was a totally non-sanctioned event. But what do you guys think this means for fat biking? You know, this is like a four or five day festival with a regional summit a series of races and a world champion that was uh, crowned and branded. Do you think this means fat biking has finally arrived or what do you think it means for the future of fat biking? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely cool to see. I don't know. I mean, like you said, it wasn't officially UCI sanctioned um, event. And so, yeah, I mean, the world championship was pretty much up to whoever like wanted to claim that title for their race. I mean, it's kind of like the world night riding championship and the, Think isn't there a world sand fat biking championship <laughs> already too? So there's a, there's a championship for just about everything. Right. Single speed world championships, which is yeah, a, definitely an unsanctioned event. Yeah, I mean, right, that's probably a good comparison. So you know, single speeding. I mean, it's still a thing, and there are people that do it, but I don't know that having a world championship like really made it more of a thing or less of a thing. But yeah, it's really cool to see that event in Crested Butte, and you know, hopefully it continues to grow because i know for a lot of people fat biking for some people is is their primary deal and it's, it's kind of a distinct sport so it's cool to see that i think it means we've reached peak fat bike yeah you think this will be the last one <laughs> the first and last i mean it, i'm interested to see how how well received it was if it met their expectations you know the people that were organizing it because looking at the pictures i mean it looked like a lot of fun but it di also didn't look like you know a ton of people out there hanging out or i mean it's cold like i wouldn't want to be out there hanging out really either yeah <laughs> yeah just like just, standing around watching yeah, that'd yeah. Be, that'd be it's not pretty. it's not super spectator friendly <laughs> that's true yeah i mean I, w I would agree with you you know we had a an awesome photographer out there covering the event but it's 
kind of hard to do the riding justice. You can't tell how steep the climbs or the descents are. And everyone looks like they're going really, really slow, which <laughs> you kind of are because it's fat biking in the snow. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure that everyone that was there and everyone that competed had a good time, you know, and from our, our report, our race report coverage that's up, uh, it definitely sounds like our contributor did. So I, I would be like Jeff, I'd be interested to see if it met the organizers expectations or not. Yeah, that'll be just be interesting to see where it goes from here, for sure. A few weeks back, we wrote about the first ever lift serve fat biking opportunity, or a regular one at least. There have been one-off events here and there, but Spirit Mountain in Duluth, Minnesota has opened their lifts for fat bikes, and uh, Kelly Canyon Resort in Idaho saw that they were doing that and decided to beat them by one day. <laughs> um, so we have at least two places that are doing lift serve fat biking, but just recently, the first video edit from downhill fat biking at spear mountain dropped and uh i'm here interested to hear what you guys think about it what do you think of the edit would you try downhill fat biking it looks like more fun than uphill fat biking (laughs) (laughs) yeah good point you know for me i initially when i heard about this i was like "Ah, they're just gonna run them down the ski runs but i guess what i didn't factor in was that spirit mountain already has downhill mountain bike trails in the summer and from the edit it looks like most of what the guys were riding were the summer trails just in the winter covered hmm. in snow, which uh, looked like a much more fun experience than just bowing down a groomed ski run. I don't know. I, I would like to give it a shot. It looked, looked like a lot of fun to me. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to try it too. But I guess the question is, you know, is it just going to be like one of those things where you're like, oh, man, I got to give that a shot for the novelty of it? Or would you keep coming back and doing it over and over again all winter long? <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends how it goes, you know. That's why I'd I'd like to try it because I really don't know. I don't know if it would just be like, okay, I did it. That was cool. I'm never doing it again. Or if it would be a thing where I want to keep going back and buy a season pass and throw away my skis. Yeah, I I would definitely, I mean, especially if I lived in Minnesota, I would A, probably already have a fat bike. So I would be interested to give it a go. But I think it would be kind of more of a, a novelty, maybe do it a handful of times a season. But I think if I lived somewhere where it was snowing like that and I had a fat bike, then I would I would probably be content to ride trails most of the time. Yeah, and it's interesting to know that Spirit Mountain, you know, they're opening their lifts, but it's like one day a week. It's like Sundays. So, you know, it's not like they're running their lifts or fat bikes all week long. So right. even at the ski resort, it's still a limited sort of offering. Yeah. So. Just be interested to see you know, if they open for more days next year or where it goes from here. Finally, just wrapping up our news coverage, uh, we had a race report from the Tuscobia 75 fat bike race, uh, which took place in central Wisconsin. But I have to ask you guys, exactly how crazy do you have to be to ride 75 or 150 miles of snow and temps going down to negative 20 below zero? What gets you to that point? How do you reach that? Um... You live in a terrible place where it gets that cold. <laughs> Cabin fever, <laughs> yeah. boredom. Yeah, what I thought was interesting about that race, apart from the fact that it's so cold and snowy, was there were several options, right? Like you didn't have to ride a bike. You could run and drag <laughs> a sled behind you, which seems even crazier to me. But yeah, there's a few different ways you could go about tackling this race. And uh, yeah, I mean, you had to carry all this 
emergency equipment with you. You had to have at least 3,000 calories with you, even when you finished. So you they, they suggested taking a jar of peanut butter, and that way you just you know leave that in your bag the entire time. But yeah, there's... I mean, it, it's no joke. You get a flat out there, and you could lose some digits. You know, I, I like big rides. I like challenging events, but I don't like the cold. So it probably wouldn't be for me. Yeah, it sounds like they were lucky, too, that they had a decent amount of snow. I, I saw another fat bike race, I believe it was in Wisconsin, um, that they ended up having to cancel that was coming up, like, in the next week or two, just because they didn't have enough snow. So... It's cool to see some of these races going off. Yeah, definitely very intense. But it's interesting to note that you know one of the reasons there's all these different events, you know, different sports in this one race is because it's a precursor to the Iditarod Trail Invitational. It's like a qualifier. You have to like check a bunch bunch of boxes before they'll even let you in the Iditarod Trail Invitational. And that race, Iditarod, again is you know it's whatever you can use to cover that distance: skis, snowshoes, running biking and there's a few different lengths but the the full-blown i did around is a thousand mile race so that's uh taking it to the next level is there a snowmobile division because that's <laughs> that's probably what i would sign up i would for. crush the snowmobile division guys <laughs> <laughs> even with snowmobiles i mean how long would that take you that still take you a few days oh yeah. yeah you'd have a sore butt <laughs> so it's been a busy week in the mountain bike world and excited to see what happens next week Thanks for listening, guys, and uh, be sure to tune in next time. Peace.